This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host. Do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Lucy Hodder. She's our Director of Health Law and Policy Programs and part of the Institute for Health Policy and Practice here at the university also. Welcome back to the show. Great to be here, AJ. So we're going to do a bit of a health policy and law roundup in today's episode of the podcast. There's a ton of things that have been going on in recent months, and uh, especially just in the, the past couple of weeks, in fact, there, there's many things that have uh, been hitting the news cycle. The most uh, obvious one of late that uh, people have been discussing is the leak of uh, Justice Alito's opinion around uh, a Supreme Court case where they essentially are reversing the decision in Roe v. Wade. Uh, Let's start off with that. Well, AJ, it's just a a decision draft. And we need to remember it's a draft that has sent repercussions across the healthcare community, as well as obviously this, um, the nation as a whole for so many reasons that we could talk about for hours here. I'm going to focus a little on the repercussions um, to the healthcare respects of the decision and what it would mean to women. I just want to note that one in three low-income women in the U.S. relies on a family planning clinic for um, contraception. So um, it's, it's a really important thing to remember that the availability of reproductive health and contraception and um, screenings and abortion, so the full availability of reproductive health services really depends on Roe to um, be protected. While there's a lot of different laws that do or don't allow public funds to support abortion, um, there's a full spectrum of reproductive health rights that this decision um, potentially puts in jeopardy, which is why for public health reasons, um, there are so many people really nervous about the implications So I want to talk briefly about what what the actual decision as drafted by Alito um, says about the right to access abortion in, of course, overturning Roe v. Wade pretty much um, fully in, you know, citing that abortion has never been a right contemplated by our Constitution and citing to, you know, 13, 14th century treatises, which I think are inherently suspect in terms of uh, analyzing a woman's right to privacy, especially given for all those centuries, women didn't have any rights at all. So it's, a, it's, it's pretty difficult to look back to that for any kind of precedence right now. But if you're looking at the actual standard of review for states who might um, prohibit access to abortion and other services that women routinely need with respect to their reproductive health. If you look at the tail end of the decision, um, Justice Alito says that law regulating abortion is entitled to a strong presumption of validity. 
And such laws must be sustained if there's a rational basis on which a legislature could have thought it would serve a legitimate state interest. So rational basis is the lowest level of review. And then he goes on to say, and legitimate state interests include a respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development. And we don't know what he means by that. He could mean uh, prenatal life. He could be reading into this uh, a respect for prenatal life as early as conception. And I think that is what is raising intense public health concerns across the country, you know, leading to someone like Janet Yellen testifying yesterday that eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children um, would significantly damage our economy and take women way back um, for decades and really impact families as well. So I think the concern from a health law perspective is, of course, undoing in one fell swoop the years of reliance on the protections afforded by the Roe v. Wade and its many interpretations and decisions. Despite how complicated it's been, it's been the backstop to allow for access to reproductive health care, full reproductive health care for women across the spectrum, but especially low-income women who rely on family planning clinics and their support to access care. So, it's a really um, important issue. Um, as I always remind us on these podcasts, basic public health looks at, you know, the, the actual um, uh, mortality of women in, in, in childbirth and you, the U.S. does not do well. It looks at access to contraception and Roe v. Wade, overturning Roe v. Wade could dramatically impact the U.S. and our, you know, recognition as, 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 a, as a country with healthcare availability um, and our ability to keep our, our populations healthy. We're going to have much more to discuss on this here probably in the next two months, if I had to guess. So we'll be sure to have uh, Professor Hodder back on to talk uh, alongside uh, John Graby, who's our constitutional law expert here and director of the Rubman Center. Uh, we're going to move on because, there's, like you said, there's hours we could talk about on this subject, that's for sure. But I want to be sure to hit some of the other things that are going on, especially in light of the public health emergency subsiding, which is uh, very important with regards to so many aspects of uh, COVID vaccine funding, uh, the ability for local governments to have authority to do various things to control the spread of the virus. I mean, what are some big things that you're keeping an eye out on when it comes to a lot of these uh, the legislation and such or executive orders that came through during COVID-19 subsiding? Well, let's start with basic and health insurance coverage. And that's been a very important part of what the federal and state governments have, have taken a careful look at because if people don't have health insurance coverage, then they aren't able to access healthcare um, or they are risking financial, uh, significant financial cost. And we have seen healthcare costs rise steadily before COVID and um, as COVID has subsided. And I say subsided very gently because I know more people with COVID now than I have at any point in the pandemic. But um, just to be clear, there've been a number of ways that that have improved people's access to health insurance during the public health emergency. And just as a reminder, the federal public health emergency is still in place, 
Um, we'll know probably next week whether or not it's going to continue after July. So we're waiting with bated breath to find out whether the federal public health emergency, which includes in it lots of protections around the availability of care uh, and coverage, we'll know next week um, the deadline for that. But let's just talk about health insurance coverage. First, there was the obligation to for states who needed more resources for their Medicaid program. Medicaid program covers people in certain categories who are low income. States received more dollars for their Medicaid program in exchange for keeping people covered. And so there are a number of people who, although they might be ineligible for Medicaid, are still covered under the program. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people in New Hampshire who are still covered under the Medicaid program, who may, if they reviewed their income or their age or their, you know, whether they're still pregnant or any of the different categories might not be eligible. And so the state and across the country, New Hampshire has been very, very aggressively preparing for this, are trying to make sure that the people who need to demonstrate ongoing eligibility for Medicaid get their paperwork in, um, redetermine now so they're not um, subject to termination when the PHE ends, and make sure their families also redetermine so their kids are covered. We have a number of kids who are not going to be eligible for coverage anymore if there's not action to redetermine their status. So that's something that states are dealing with across the country. The other thing that's happened is that under the um, the uh, um, American Rescue Plan that took effect in 2021, there have been enhanced subsidies for people who are seeking insurance on our healthcare.gov marketplace. And so there's a number of ways insurance have been enhanced, possibilities have enhanced. The first is you get full subsidies um, and premium payment if you're 150% or less of the federal poverty level. That's great news for people who may no longer be eligible for Medicaid, who can go to the marketplace and get insurance coverage and have their premiums and out-of-pocket um, costs covered. So that's number one. The second thing that happened is more premium subsidies. Remember the marketplace allows you to apply for help paying premiums and for help playing our ever-increasing deductibles that we all can't stand, right? And so the other thing is more people with higher incomes are eligible for help. So um, that's allowed for thousands of people to get more help with their premiums. It's no longer a 400% of the federal poverty is your cap to get help. It's now a percent of your income that you spend on health care. So more and more people have had subsidies. And finally, we've, uh, the, the um, Biden administration is fixing the family glitch. Oftentimes people who have healthcare through one, um, one family member's work, it can be affordable for, for an individual plan, but if your work may make you spend a whole lot for a family plan. I discovered right? that the hard way when my kid was born. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, AJ. You may be exactly someone who falls in this family glitch. And historically, what that has meant is your family, even though it's unaffordable at work because of the deductibles when you're a family versus an individual, your family can't go to the marketplace and get subsidized care and coverage. But they're fixing that. 
So that is going to make a huge difference to people um, once the family glitch is fixed. That's not until the end uh, of 2022. So in 2023, but just the key takeaways here, we're really concerned about people who are going to lose coverage under the Medicaid program. If they're not continuing subsidies past 2022, a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford the coverage on the marketplace. And we're really looking forward to some of those fixes like the family glitch so that marketplace coverage is affordable. Whole nother topic as to why healthcare costs are rising so fast and with sort of unfettered uh, uh, escalation. Um, but that's what's happening on health insurance as related to the public health emergency. And we're also seeing that that special coverage of COVID care mm -hmm. is disappearing as well. So the hope is health insurance coverage will pick that up, but there are a lot of people who are seeing um, sort of aggressive costs around COVID care um, that are is really troubling. Yeah, because right now the, the federal government picks up basically the cost of the vaccines that everyone gets, and there's a lot of coverage right now when it comes to just testing, generally speaking. Yeah, absolutely. So it's testing, it's vaccines, but it's also the care that you have to get if you are sick with COVID that is also a concern. Um, so we're hoping that vaccines will be covered as preventative care um, going forward under health insurance. And I think most health insurance um, are covering them. So you just have to make sure where you're getting your vaccine um, is uh, you know, a covered entity um, and a covered distribution. Uh, I've, I've learned that the hard way by getting my vaccine somewhere and realizing that's not the place I'm supposed to go. It, the development of the vaccines themselves, I mean, that's going to have to be an ongoing thing in order to catch up with the variants because we've seen substantial uh, genetic mutations in the virus as it evolves over time. Is this something the federal government is going to be continuing to fund? So, you know, absolutely. That's a, that's a really important question to ask. I think that, um, you know, whether or not uh, we are able to work out um, you know, the, the, the IP and the protections and, and the rights associated with uh, supporting the ongoing development of vaccines really is a whole separate conversation around, you know, IP protections and marching rights and, and what should happen um, to make sure that vaccine developments is both well-funded and, and uh, thoroughly accessible. So ongoing discussion on that, which maybe we can have um, uh, a little bit further in the fall. Let's move over to some other legislation that's, that's gone through. The No Surprises in Billing Act, uh, it was a really fascinating thing that came through. What, what was that about? So the No Surprises Act is really um, very interesting. And basically, it, it prohibited balanced billing for, for surprising costs that were um, provided to you um, without you realizing it when you went to access care. So let's say you went to the emergency room and um, you were taken there in the ambulance and then, you know, you, you, you realize the emergency room is not in network or you had surgery and all of a sudden the anesthesiologist is not in network. Um, so it's that kind of bill that you get where all of a sudden your insurance carrier might've negotiated a $200 cost for that service, but that provider is not in network and so you're paying 500 and your cost sharing is much higher because they're out of network. So basically um, 
but, you know, as usual, nothing is easy, right? This seems like a simple fix. Like it's not fair, AJ, if you go to the hospital and you end up having to pay out of huge amounts out of pocket for something you never knew was not a network because the hospital was. So the bill was signed into law December 27, 2020, you know, bipartisan support. Then the rulemaking started, okay? And devil's in the details. And just to note, you know, the providers here, basically their point is, hey, we shouldn't have to fight with insurance companies to get paid and lowballed. We should be able to not have to deal with insurance companies if we want to. So don't mess with our bargaining power to get paid what we should get paid. On the alternative, the patient rights folks are basically saying this is totally unfair. You can't put the patient in the middle of this, you know, fight a battle of the titans between insurance companies and providers. So basically we had we had rules, the first interim rules, then the um, second interim rules, and then finally effective January 1st, 2022. But everybody's got some skin in the game here. So health plans have to put a notice that um, you know, there's surprise billing protections for patients on their websites and let patients know about it. Providers have to let patients know about the protections. And basically, emergency services, you know, have to be covered without prior authorization, regardless of whether or not um, they're in network. And the limits of cost sharing are in network rates. Now, this doesn't apply to ambulance services, which is really tough. It does apply to air ambulance, but not ambulance. Now, the one thing that I, I like to talk about what the issues are that are outstanding. So the real question, what they're fighting over in Washington right now is when a health plan um, it pays for an out-of-network service, you know, the patient isn't covered. They, they just have to cover the negotiated cost and they're in network deductible, even if it's out of network. So the patient is taken care of. Then the health plan goes after that out-of-network provider and says, you know, I'm going to pay you the negotiated rate. The, then there is um, dispute resolution around that. So the real fight in Washington is what is the um, dispute resolution going to use as its as its assumption of a reasonable cost? Um, and so what's paid there? The next issue is that out-of-network providers can simply get consent from a patient at the time of service to um, make it the patient's responsibility to pay. And so there's a real question of awareness. Are patients going to be aware of that? We sign so many things when we go to get service. Are we going to even be aware we've signed it away? Yeah. I mean, is this something that healthcare transparency is very important? And for, is, are states like New Hampshire already had some laws around this going to be ahead of the, the curve when it comes to this becoming reality? Absolutely. It's, it's going to change the game. Now hospitals have to price um, uh, post all of their costs. It's not just what patients will be able to find, because in New Hampshire, we had great transparency on the New Hampshire cost website. It's that you can get the entire kit and caboodle and machine readable form of every payer, you know, 300 of the top services and what they're paid. Um, so it's really big deal. About half our hospitals are complying with it. Um, so, you know, the question is going forward, how's that information going to be used? Does it help patients with cost issues? So we got so much going on, AJ. You know, we could talk about um, healthcare changes, the opioid litigation, opioid settlement, mental health parity changes, um, and so on. But maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast soon uh, to go into the other details. Definitely have you back on soon. Professor Lucy Hodder, Director of Health Law and Policy Programs here at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.